Welcome to Dangerous Christianity with Dr. Christopher Rodkey, where we explore new ways of being Christian that go against the grain, stands up against the church when it's evil, speaks truth to power, and reclaims the Bible as a radical message of hope, liberation, and justice. Dr. Rodkey is pastor of St. Paul's United Church of Christ in Dallastown, Pennsylvania, and leads the sacred profane community, a post-faith gathering for those seeking to nurture a literate and misfit geeky, sometimes sneaky, as well as a queer-affirming and beer-affirming spirituality. All information mentioned throughout the program is listed in the show notes. And now, please welcome Dr. Christopher Rodney. So this is our inaugural uh, scripture at noon Bible lesson. And I do see that there is someone that called in. I don't know who that is. Uh, and uh, Tim is with me. We have a small group. Would the person on the phone like to say who they are? Hi, this is Diane. I'm uh, Rax's mom. Oh, thanks for chiming in. Nice to see you. Rax is one of our educators here at St. Paul's in Dallastown, who is a wonderful Sunday school teacher. Yeah. Um, well, nice to hear. Yeah, yeah. So this is an experiment, and I just wanted to see how it went, and I meant this to be relatively short. And uh, we're already at 1211, uh, as Tim and I were messing around with some of the features on here I didn't know about. And uh, uh, let me get down to business. Uh, I want to read a little bit from the Bible. Uh, if you have a Bible in front of you, or you can look at it on your computer, um, I'm going to be using the NRSV translation just because that's what uh, most mainline Protestants have easy access to. But uh, we're going to look at uh, Luke, uh, Luke 1, 26. Okay. Which is the Annunciation. And I've been thinking a lot about Christmas, not only because it's that time of year here at church, um, but I've been teaching a course on Christmas at York College of Pennsylvania. It's called, uh, it's a first year seminar titled, Do They Know It's Christmas? And it's subtitled, uh, Politics, Sex, and America. Uh, Religion, Politics, and Sex in America. And it's, uh, I picked the worst possible Christmas song I could think of to name it after. Um, and uh, it's, it's about the origins of Christmas and how cultural ideas morph through time. And it's endlessly fascinating. Um, and uh, we did a section at the beginning of the course, and I invited Greg Carey, who's a professor at Lancaster, Bible, uh, Lancaster Theological Seminary, to come in and give a guest lecture on the Bible. And really interesting. I, I'm always really excited to do interesting Bible study with young people. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm looking at Luke 1, 26. Uh, this is the call of Mary. So in the sixth month, the angel... Gabriel was sent by God to, to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I'm a virgin? 
the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. And then we have this little interlude with Elizabeth. Um, and let's skip to verse 46, which is the Magnificat. Uh, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God. My Savior for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on, all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in his thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the powerful from their thrones, lifted up the lonely. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has set the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and his descendants forever. And Mary remained with her for about three months and returned to her home. So this is uh, probably not new to either of you and mm -hmm. is one of the most commonly read scriptures uh, around Christmas and Advent. Uh, it is one of the most important passages of scripture in the New Testament regarding Mary. And uh, this is called by many the, the Annunciation, uh, which is the event of uh, the angel uh, meeting Mary and telling her, guess what? You're pregnant. And uh, the Magnificat has been put to musical settings uh, many times. And I always say that whenever the Bible breaks out into poetry, especially in books of the Bible that are not mostly written as poetry, it's usually quoting something or making use of a song that may have been used at the time. So it's entirely likely that the song that Mary sings uh, may have been um, may have been around in the early church, and it's it's preserved here for us. Or it might be something similar in another culture that found its way in here with Mary put in. But I think in this case, this is a this is a song that uh, is probably indicative of the early church. What made me pick this out this week? And uh, I'll talk a little bit, and then I'll open it for conversation is uh, I've been thinking about the controversy with the baby it's cold outside song, which has been great in my Christmas class um, because everyone has a really strong opinion about this. And um, I'm also teaching an informal logic class. So I, I had my, all of my students were against getting rid of the song. Uh, and I, I told them that they should get rid of the song because the song sucks, not for any other reason. <laughs> but um, you know, I said I'd even take Mariah Carey's stuff over this any day. But nonetheless, uh, all of them gave their reasons of why you should keep it. And they were all really bad arguments uh, upon analysis. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting debate. Uh, I don't feel super strongly about it, but I, I think it's changed. It's, it's symbolic of the changes in which we're thinking about things in the Me Too movement. Uh, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, I think it. Uh, I think there are bigger fish to fry than this song, but uh, we can we can talk about that another time. But um, so much of the story of Mary is wrapped up in our understanding of the feminine and of womanhood in the Western world, 
that Mary is perpetually virgin, perpetually mother, right? This impossible ideal that no woman could possibly be simultaneously except for her. Uh, she's so pure that she was born immaculately of her mother uh, in, a, in an immaculate conception. So her father really had no uh, genetic input into her. Uh, she was not born in an act of sinfulness of sexuality. Uh, she never uh, had sex as the Catholic tradition teaches. Um, she remained a virgin for her entire life. And that is rooted in a text called the Proto-Evangelion of James, uh, which is a non-canonical uh, Bible text where um, Mary ends up giving birth in a cave and uh, a midwife calls in someone to uh, saying, you know, that she was able to give birth without uh, breaking her hymen. And so a friend comes in to check and does an exam on Mary and, and says, you know what, her hymen's still here. So it was a virgin birth and virgin conception and virgin birth. So for Protestants, when we talk about virgin birth, what we really mean is virgin conception, because a virgin birth would mean that Mary gave birth to Jesus in a way that magically uh, kept her hymen intact. Uh, and then God blamed the, the woman who doubted uh, her virginity by making her hand wilt away. Um, and then she repented and got her hand back. Um, but that's the, that's the ancient foundation for the belief of perpetual virginity. Um, and for Protestants, it's not as big of an issue uh, because I was always taught that Mary and Joseph had other children. That's not a big deal. Uh, but the doctrine of perpetual virginity is considered dogma in the Catholic Church, which is to say you cannot dispute it, um, not because it's from the Bible, but because the, the, the Pope has made an official statement and a, a council has, has voted on it, as I understand how that works. So with that being said, I really like the philosopher Mary Daly, who's a feminist philosopher uh, of religion, who reads in her book, Pure Lust, this narrative as symbolic of sexual assault. And that Mary essentially becomes the quiet, the quiet woman who should be thankful that she received this gift. And it, it's, it sort of uplifts the ideal of what women should be doing when they are assaulted or, or, um, or coerced into sexuality against their will. Um, I think that's a provocative statement. I think there is something to that. But what, what I want to focus our attention on is on verse 38, which is Mary's response to the, to the angel. So the angel, keeping in mind the angels are scary things in, in the biblical world. They're not like the fat cherub baby that your great aunt has all over her house, you know? Um, this angel comes, don't be afraid. You, and in verse 31, you will conceive in your womb. So talking in past, uh, future, future tense, uh, not as if this has already happened. Um, so it's saying that this is about to happen, not that it's already happened, but that's also a little ambiguous in here. That being said, um, in verse 38, here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Now, in the ancient world, stories of Greek deities assaulting virgins was a typical religious trope. Uh, it was sort of expected because hyper-masculine deities that were worth, worth worshiping because of their, their power and strength 
would have used their power and strength in that way if they had the ability to, and they, they in fact, took, took advantage of it. Um, lots of examples of this in the ancient world. Um, remember, the New Testament's written in Greek for a Greek audience. So the people who are hearing this would at least be moderately familiar with this anomaly or, or with this phenomena in other religions. So here we have an example of a story that emulates another religious tradition, namely that a, that a god is impregnating a woman, specifically a female. But what's interesting here is in verse 38 again, here am I, the servant of the Lord, let it be with me according to your word. Mary clearly makes the statement that she's subservient to the Lord. Um, and then the word here, let it be with me according to your word, is actually one word in Greek. And the word here in Greek uh, is a very specific use of this particular term that does not really have an English translation. So it is often translated as let it be with me according to your word to make it sound as if it is subjunctive uh, in terms of giving permission, you know, as in let it be, um, which is uh, not how most people talk today. Uh, it was not how pe most people talked then either. It was a very ancient use of Greek that had fallen out of favor, but was used for contractual agreements. It would have been the kind of writing that lawyers would have used, right? So if you look at a legal document today and you read it and you're like, what on earth is this really saying? It's because there's a specific kind of terminology that lawyers use in old forms of English to be very specific. Um, and here it's being used very specifically. Now, whoever wrote down Luke, we can call him Luke, um, probably did not have Greek as his first language. So it's unlikely that he would have done this by mistake. This was an intentional grammatical um, clue that's being given here that probably would have been understood by those listening to it in the first century. In other words, she is giving permission now, whether Mary had permission or not, that's another question, right? She might not have had permission, um, but she responds as if she does. And not only does she do the, say, okay, she makes a contractual agreement. Are you guys following me so far? Yeah. So then what I, what I find really interesting about that then um, there's a story about Elizabeth that's sort of interjected in here. Um, and then we go into the Magnificat, which is a really phenomenal uh, piece of literature uh, inserted in here uh, about the history of covenants, the history of legal agreements with God and God's people. Um, and it's about the reversal of the social order, right? This is not... Uh, this is this is not give to Caesar what's Caesar's. It's the the lowly will be lifted up. Um, he has he will bring down the powerful from their thrones. Uh, he will feed the hungry with good news with good things. This is a, a complete reversal of the social order. Uh, that that God is is prioritizing the poor. Uh, this is not fair to the rich, but is a prioritization of the poor. Um, which, which falls in line with a lot of early other Christmas traditions and other pagan traditions around the, the, the Saturn uh, holiday that occurs around Christmas um, and the solstice. But nonetheless, here it is as this reversal of the social order. 
I think if you took this out and recast it a little bit, you and told someone it was Marxist literature, they might they might go for it. But then again, you might be able to do that with a lot of Jesus's teachings too. Um, it it very much has this radical political aspect to it, and to that end, I want to bring attention to in verse thirty five. The title Son of God is being offered here, right? And I can't tell you how many times people tell me keep politics and religion separate, um, which is usually like code for I, I politically am challenged by what you said, preacher, so shut up. Um, that you cannot avoid the political aspect of this, right? She's not only saying that the political order is going to reverse. She, the angel's telling her that he will be called Son of God, and we have to admit that son of God, we can interpret what that means theologically, but in that time, that was a political title because the emperor of Rome took that title and called himself that, much to the laughing stock nature of people in, in the Hebrew-speaking world. who Probably, they, they were frightened of this idea, but they also thought this is total nonsense. No, God, no man is God, right? But now we have an angel saying, you know what? This man is God, right? So, it's hard to not be political about this statement, which to me falls in line with a lot of the conversations we're having in, in our culture about, um, about immigration. You know, is, is, we're seeing pictures of churches putting up cages around their nativity scenes outside as a statement about immigration. Um, is that fair? Is that not fair? Is that political? Is that reading something in the story that's not there? Um, whether they are immigrants or not is, a, is, a, is an interesting question because in the ancient world, borders were thought of as a little different, I think. Um, but I like to say that this is the greatest census evasion story ever told. Uh, if, it's not an, if it's not an immigration or asylum situation, it's definitely an, a census uh, evasion story. Uh, which at the heart of it is that the Christ child is never counted by Caesar, right? The, the empire never counts him as one of his own because he's out of the country at the time, or we can maybe assume that he is. So what are your thoughts about this? Is this uh, something new, something you might not have heard before? Is this something that challenges things? Does this not make sense? I mean, I think the thing about the Greek word in verse 38 is really important. Um, to say that you have heard this story in another way, but here is a different way of saying it. it's, it's sneaking in that this is not Zeus raping the virtuous virgin. Uh, this is, uh, it's not entirely different, but it is a woman responding as if she has uh, moral agency and then sings praises uh, as a gift, um, but it is a gift that is not so much thank you for giving me this gift. It is, this is an extension of the long history of covenants of the Hebrew speaking people. And it isn't to maintain the status of the rich. It's to prioritize the poor. So I'll step back and see what you have to say. Um, I, I guess a lot of this is new for me and I always appreciate uh, your take on things and um, the wisdom and the um, the way you open things up when I hear you speak and preach and teach. Um, <clears throat> in my uh, childish way of looking at the scriptures, I'd always compared Mary's response to Zechariah's response. Mm -hmm. 
and that was um, that was just interesting to me that they were both afraid and that they um, you know one one you know while they both asked how can this be you know to one um, it was counted as disbelief and then to the other um, there was an explanation so um, I appreciate a new way of looking at that thank you thank you and in fact I was looking around here Zech, that's that's an interesting thing that you called to Zechariah uh, that's in chapter 3 of Luke I was flipping around because I couldn't remember if that was in Matthew or Luke it's on the very next page uh, of what we were looking at um, so what what really connects you to these two texts for you uh, what connected them for me was uh, just like I said, you know, that was, I believe it was the same angel. They were both given, you know, they were both given a special message. They were both afraid, and um, and and I I suppose that I always the lesson I was took from that was, and especially as a woman, I guess it maybe it's even more significant. Um, watch your response. Because, you know, it's, it's noted, it counts. Uh, when you receive a word, when God speaks to your heart, watch your response. Um, because it matters, and God knows the heart, and he knows your attitude, he knows your approach. Um, be careful of that. I, I, that's, that's sort of what's always been on my mind when I've heard this story. And I just had to teach, I just had the opportunity to teach children this story this past Sunday about Mary. Um, and it was a little bit difficult uh, for my age group. And to say, you know, that the, the miracle of this is that Mary's a virgin. I don't know, you know, if these young children even know what that means. How old are they? Uh, third grade to fifth grade. They probably know more than I do. Mm. Um, <clears throat> That's a tough age. Uh, well, all kids are a tough age uh, teaching yeah. Sunday school. Um, and I've always, uh, I didn't, I really prepared to talk about this kind of stuff today. Um, that uh, there's a guy named Fowler who wrote a great book on uh, religious education that puts forward the idea that there's different stages of faith that people are in. Sometimes it is mm -hmm. developmental with age that you can't go into a kindergarten classroom and start talking about myth in a way that, that is complex, but also suggesting that because the church never goes past that, we end up having a bunch of adults that cannot think, uh, think beyond a literal level of, of scripture and story. Um, that's me. That's me. And that's why I have such fascinating conversations with fracks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, it's sort of, it's changing my perspective a little bit because like I said, you know, when I originally um, started speaking, I said, well, I'll give you my childlike view because that's where I still am. Mm. Well, and honestly, there's, there's nothing wrong with looking at a story from the, the sort of uh, literary innocence perspective um, because that's where a lot of us start. And uh, mm -hmm. the question I would ask like academically is that I don't think these stories were meant to be children's stories when they were written. They are written exactly. for adults. Uh, though the songs maybe not. Um, and again, I misspoke before. The song of Zechariah is in Luke 1, 67 and following. Um, uh, let me say a few things about that before you before we turn the page. And and Tim, who is uh, is your title worship pastor at your church? So praise, praise and worship leader. Praise and worship leader. Um, 
one concept in literature that's that we see in the infancy narratives of Jesus is what we call a step parallel. A step parallel means that you're trying to outdo another story. So that's why there's a lot of uh, connections to Elijah and Jesus, for example, and maybe even Moses and, and Jesus at different points, um, that they're trying to, the, the later story is trying to outdo the other to show how great the, the other one is. In the John the Baptist narratives here, it's, it's sort of done in reverse here, that they give you the great story about Jesus, and then they go backwards a little bit, that, um, you know, that John the Baptist wasn't as great as Jesus. Um, and if you read these stories about John the Baptist in that way, it's almost like a diss to John the Baptist. Um, mm -hmm. Because we actually know that the John the Baptist cult um, went on for quite some time. I always assumed growing up and, and until I learned otherwise, that the Baptist, Jesus sort of shows up and they all convert and that's the end of it. And uh, we don't know a lot of details of, but we know that they existed beyond the, the birth of the church. Uh, from writings of, of other uh, uh, fairly reputable sources from the ancient world, um, which which suggests to me that maybe the early church was trying to differentiate what they were against John the Baptist um, to kind of and to kind of bring that narrative into their story and to downplay him a little bit, but to emphasize you know John the Baptist is good, but Jesus is where it's at, right? Um, and uh, and I also find this story, I'm glad you said something about Zechariah. Um, I find that story really fascinating about the, the, the opening of the mouth to speak, uh, the tongue being freed, um, and also the way it sets up the, the dedication of child and the circumcision of Jesus um, as sort of this subversive act, you know, keeping in mind the last murder victim of the Old Testament was named Zechariah, right? Um, and, and that's... Uh, in the in the Maccabean conflict prior to this, the, the the legends are that they would find circumcised children and and hang them dead around their mothers' necks, you know, as punishment. Um, you know, and in that context, which was not what was going on at this time, uh, sorry if that upset you, uh, which is was not what was going on at that time. But they it, by putting it in the history of these covenants, it's putting it in this larger scope of history that. You know, to circumcise Jesus, to dedicate him in the temple and so forth, is, is to put him in a subversive tradition that's about to explode into something new. And that's what I think is really cool about that. So I, I'm really grateful that you brought that up. Tim, what do you, what do you have to add here? Sure you um, might know this better than I do. No, not at all. Uh, a couple of thoughts. Um, actually, I find it fascinating that um, when the angel appears to Zacharias, and he says, how can this be, since my wife and I are both old and she's barren? Um, he is then unable to speak until the birth of the child. And yet when Mary questions and says, how can this be, because I'm a virgin, that doesn't happen. And so I always find the, the uh, dichotomy there interesting. Uh, when I read scripture, I, like, it, it, I end up with a thousand more questions than anything, and I find that good. Um, the other statement that you talked about, the birth of Christ being, um, you know, this, uh, you know, as part of the greater political movement, Mary acknowledging this, that's exactly what those who were seeking a Messiah were looking for, is someone to take down the, 
uh, social structure that had been imposed upon them. And so uh, I think it's perfectly natural for Mary, who you would assume has heard these uh, uh, things through time, um, would believe that, you know, okay, yeah, I, I believe the angel has brought this to me. Uh, this is in uh, concert with the, you know, what, what I've heard. And so for her to say, you know, he will, he will, he will bring up the cause of the poor and he will bring down the rulers off of their throne. He seems perfect natural. Um, interesting. What, what is the Greek word that you referred to uh, when she says, basically, let it be, Do you know? I don't get it and I'll look it up for you. <laughs> well, the reason I asked is because um, as you were saying that, my thought was going to um, one of the sayings of Christ on the cross, uh, which was the Greek word tetelestai. I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, but basically, um, it was also a transactional term that was used and recognized by the people, which was, you know, the transaction is complete. Um so I was just curious if there was some similarity to um, this saying that Mary said, which was let it be. I, I'm not knowing what the Greek word was. Well, I'm, um, here's the issue. And I'm not the Greek scholar. Uh, this is something I, I learned in my seminary class. That I thought, man, that's really awesome. Um, <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I always tell the story. That when I studied at the University of Chicago with uh, Hans Dieter Betz, uh, one time he, he said that uh, my translate. My translations weren't so bad, but my pronunciations were awful. Yeah. And, um, but then I was like, but it's a dead language, right? So, um, but nonetheless, I found it here. It's genoito, uh, genoito, um, let it happen. So genoito moi kata to uh, Roma, uh, so kai apathelian, uh, may, let it, may it happen to me according to the word of you. The genoito is the issue here. Um, it is a prolongation of a middle voice from a primary word for uh, to be or to become great latitude. And this is what I re recall is that it's the aorist optative middle third person singular. It's a very unusual use of that word that, uh, again, I can't say that's my own original research, but uh, that's my understanding is that this is a very unusual uh, grammatical construction that is very specific to that time. It may be that he, it's just a grammatical mistake, but Luke does not make a lot of grammatical mistakes in the same way that we might look at the book of Revelation and see those kinds of things happen. Uh, this is, when we have words like this in most of the New Testament, we can assume that it's there for a reason. So um, other people that's, that hear this and know the Bible better can correct me on that, but I'm, I'm looking at an interlinear online right now since you asked, uh, uh, and again, as I remember, it's the oris optative middle uh, that is the issue with that text. Which also, Alan Moyer has joined us. Yeah, Alan Moyer, uh, thanks for coming in. Uh huh. Thank you. So you have more to say, Tim. I sort of stopped you at that no, point. No, no. Um, I just think, uh, as you as you shared, um, it, I, I find the comparisons to. Um, the, uh, the uh, ancient gods of uh, Greek uh, and these stories fascinating. And I also, um, like I said, when I, when I read uh, scripture like this, I end up with more questions than answers. Uh, but, but I find that to be okay. Um, it just, it, it uh, more questions for the journey.
That's what's exciting about Bible study. Yes. Yeah. Unless you're stuck in that faith stage we talked about earlier, where you just want someone to tell you the answer. <laughs> right, which is, a, which is always a problem. And to that end, you know, this, this topsy-turvy reversal of the social order is, of course, an important theme in the Gospels, um, especially in the Sermon on the Mount and the ideas of the last being first, the first being last. Um, and it's interesting that it is not very specific here in terms of what, who is going to be brought up. It's just the poor. It's just the poor. It's not the poor people of my race, right? It's very general. Um, and whether that was intentional or, or, or not, I find that really powerful. Um, and uh, it, it, it connects with the story later. And I think this kind of speaking is apocalyptic in the sense that it is unveiling something that is deeply true, right? It's, it's unmasking something. And she's unmasking something by taking on this child as a Christ bearer. Um, and it is saying, this is what is about to happen, right? And it's cataclysmic. And to, for the angel to name the son of God as the name here, uh, I, I sort of imagine that like, uh, you know, the people hearing this around the fire the first time heard the angel say he's going to be called son of, son of God. And they'd be like, oh, shit, you know, uh, you know, this, this is, this is getting good now, right? Yeah. Um, yeah that we hear that and we're like, it's so pedestrian for us to say son of God, of Jesus, without really quite figuring out what it is or destroying the concept by trying to theologize it into something that makes sense. Um, it's, it's clearly this political statement. Um, and also back to what you said too about uh, the Zechariah, it, it may be that the story of Elizabeth, containing Elizabeth and Zechariah into the story is another way of delimiting John the Baptist as the step parallel, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Idea. And to that end, you know, um, Alan chimed in a little late and I'll ask him for some parting words. But uh, <laughs> uh, one thing I've learned about teaching uh, the college class on Christmas is that, you know, the, the ancient world had these traditions where the masters would uh, move out of their homes and let their slaves take over their homes temporarily. That was part of the, the pagan traditions of Saturnalia uh, that had this reversal of the social order. So the slaves would move in the master's house temporarily, and they would uh, then sort of mock, mock their masters and eat their food. And, and then at the end of the 12 days, they would go back and uh, the, the order would be restored. And if the masters were really hard on the slaves, they would kind of punish them by destroying their house more. And if the mm. slaves were really bad on the masters, they would take it out on the slaves. So it was this way of kind of letting it out of their system. And as, this, um, as the middle class started developing in the ancient world, um, we, we see people doing what we now see as trick-or-treating next door to door. Uh, lesser, mm -hmm. lesser privileged people going to people that owned land uh, but might not have owned slaves uh, and asking for, uh, for tips. Um, and if they did not give them tips, they would do something in retaliation. So you give it out of fear. Um, mm -hmm. And that actually continued until uh, the early modern period when uh, what we now know as Halloween was intentionally shifted away from Christmas uh, to, um, to uh, St. Nicholas Day. And then the Church of England pushed it even further back to be with All Saints Day. Uh, 
So when we trick or treat, that's actually a Christian, uh, it's not a Christian tradition, but it's something that's connected to the history of Christmas, right? Hmm. And um, some interesting things about the slave owning South, that there was this other thing that happened with slaves in the South too, that they would uh, go in the streets and mock their masters, right? Uh, it was called the Jim Canoe or, or Joe Canoe rituals, that there was this reversal of the social order that happened. Um, and uh, that seems to be a theme in the pagan world in this time of year. It's a theme in the Christian world this time of year. It's made a lot of sense why I think the Christian world tacked its, uh, this story onto the pagan world in this way, because it's a, at the heart, the story of Mary is this reversal of the social order. You may have heard this as a sexual assault story, but now it is not, um, or at least it is not in the same way. Um, and, uh, and we have this uh, statement that comes off as a Marxist statement, kind of pseudo-Marxist statement or proto-Marxist statement that the, the hungry will have their, have their uh, bellies filled with good things and so on. Um, and that's, that's what, the more and more I study Christmas, that's what I really take away from Christmas, uh, that these stories are just sort of the outer crust of the inner shell of what's really happening here uh, as this reversal of the social order, uh, which of course is implicit with the idea of God entering the world and, and transcendent entering space and time. Um, I mean, even in Charles Dickens, um, you know, uh, I, I think that Charles Dickens, we have read Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol wrong uh, in that I, I think it's really sticking it to the rich. Um, it's, it, you know, at, at the end, everyone's happy that they're, that Tiny Tim and, and Scrooge are together. Uh, but I think it's really a, it's sort of a practical joke on the upper class to say, see, we have a heart too. Um, mm -hmm. And, uh, but there is this reversal of the social order happening nonetheless, whether it's genuine or not. Um, so other things, I'm talking a lot here. Alan, do you have any words of wisdom as you always do for the? Uh, well, well, thank you, Pastor. No, I have no words of wisdom. As you said, I, I came in late, so I'm trying to catch up. Okay. So. We did record this so we can, uh, so others can see it and preserve our mis my mistakes. <laughs> so let me ask a final question. Um, how, um, Alan had a question. Oh, no, Alan had a question. Go ahead. No, I have no question. <laughs> well, let me kind of put out a question and maybe it's not one to answer, but one to think through is how, how we express Mary's song in what we do at Christmas. How do we, hmm. how do we extend this covenant that is a reversal? Um, beyond sort of uh, pacifying acts of charity, like uh, Uncle Scrooge uh, or Scrooge would do in the story. I always think of Scrooge McDuck when I think of that story. Because <laughs> <laughs> you have little amazing. people. <laughs> but how, it's very little it, of what we do. I, I, again, I'll, I want to think on this even further, but I think very little of what we do around this time of the year has anything at all. Uh, to do any more with uh, uh, the original Christmas story. Uh, it's beside, at least in uh, the American culture, it's become so commercialized and monetized that, um, you know, we may show up at a uh, Christmas Eve service or we may sing songs that uh, 
remind us of this story, but very little of our actual actions during this time of the year reflect um, any connection to the original story or the intent of what Christmas was to be. Um, I think that's a sad commentary, but that's just kind of my initial thoughts on it. I think that's true. I think that's very true. And when I think about when I think about the Magnificat, I really, I really felt that two things. One, Mary was familiar with the scriptures and knew that's what you know God wanted to bring, uh, bring about, bring into the world, and um, and also that she, and also that she was um, filled with the Holy Spirit at that moment. Um, I think about Miriam, you know, after they, after they crossed the Red Sea and her song, um, I, I think, you know, she was filled with the spirit and I think the same, you know, with Mary and that, you know, that truth that comes out, that deep truth that we, we really don't have inside of us, that God can put inside of us and bring out and share. But, but besides, you know, agreeing that um, our actions don't really speak the gospel necessarily during Christmas, um, maybe not even throughout the year if we're not careful and life just keeps slipping by. Um, I also, you know, I want to think more deeply about uh, Mary's response and uh, and the Magnificat and, you know, what, what does God want for us to learn from that? How does he want us to conduct ourselves uh, in response to him? Uh, coming, you know, in these humble means and also um, wanting that role reversal so that people are lifted up and cared for. That's really beautiful. Um, and what, <clears throat> quite literally, Mary becomes a bearer of the holy, right? She becomes right. A, a carrier right. of Christ. She, she's carrying the crucifixion and the resurrection inside of her before wow. anyone else. And, and keep me in mind, I mean, just as today, the female reproductive system is the, the most hotly contested space in American politics, mm -hmm. uh, to, to think of this coming into the world in the, in the, in the, the womb of a, of a teenage single girl um, mm. is, is uh, uh, not only piggybacking on traditions that are found in the, in, in the pagan world, but but also to say, of all the places God would go, that's where God goes. Right. And into right. this place that the world, men didn't understand, and were deep down afraid of. And, uh, and out of that abyss uh, emerges the Christ. Right? Wow. Well, I'm sorry that I, I, I talked so much uh, during that, but uh, I think this went really well. And um, this was sort of an experiment. And... Uh, we want to, uh, we'll do it again more, more regularly in the new year, and uh, maybe I can invite some friends or guest speakers or uh, uh, any of you could lead this uh, really beautifully, too, um, and uh, maybe find we a don't way. apologize because I learned a lot, and I'm grateful, you know, for what you taught. No, but I, I mean it genuinely. Uh, uh, your, your contributions, both of yours, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm inspired by also, um, and... Uh, uh, and that's that's when Bible study is is at its best. It's when we can sort of um, rethink things together in new ways and 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 hear hear new ways of thinking. And uh, mm 
and I'm really grateful for this opportunity. So uh, I'm going to stop yeah. recording, but uh, thank you so much for coming and uh, uh, on your computer. And we'll see you soon and have a nice Christmas. Thank, thank you so much. God bless. Thanks, Chris. Thank you for listening to Dangerous Christianity. For more information about how to get involved in the movement, how to contact Dr. Christopher Rodkey, or where to find information regarding his preaching itinerary, publications, or how to make a contribution to his ministry, please refer to the listed show notes. Dr. Rodkey, again, would like to thank all of his listeners for continuously supporting and tuning into his work and message. Thank you.